dig is the first part of this process of trying to dismantle these systemic issues that we see in our workplaces. And it requires us to get really honest with ourselves and dig into our own preconceptions about race, about gender, about power, and recognize those particular biases and worldviews that we have and challenge them. So then the co-conspirator takes that information and when he is in spaces or places where the historically marginalized people are not, he speaks up on their behalf. He uses his social capital to advance the agenda set by members of the historically marginalized group. And if we can move people from ally to accomplice to co-conspirator, co-conspirators are enacting shared sisterhood. They're doing the work of actually dismantling systemic inequity. This is Inclusion Begins With Me, conversations that matter. I'm your host, Dr. Cindy Pace, Vice President and Global Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer at MetLife. Our podcast examines the pivotal role people play in creating inclusive workplaces that are built for the future. How does inclusion impact our well-being? Why is it a business imperative? In each episode, we weave together storytelling and research-driven conversations with globally recognized authors, experts, and DEI practitioners. On the show, we tackle steps that each of us can take to advance DEI. Tina Opie and Beth Livingston are the co-authors of Shared Sisterhood, How to Take Collective Action for Racial and Gender Equity at Work. I had the opportunity to read Beth and Tina's book as a manuscript, and then I was asked, do you recommend publishing this book? My answer was a resounding yes. The book is about coalition building and accountability. It shares a roadmap for building relationships and trust between historically power-dominant groups and marginalized groups. Tina is a black woman and Beth is a white woman. Their relationship is the prime example of how to build shared sisterhood. Tina started by describing the origin of this concept. Shared sisterhood, I heard that term the first time at the Academy of Management in a professional development workshop. And there were some colleagues who I really respected. And it was, I volunteered, or maybe I was asked to develop the term because someone had sort of said, What is this about? And it ended up being a solo project. And then I went, and my husband's a history professor. And what I wanted the topic to be about is how can we share sisterhood across difference in the workplace? So I started reading up on history books about the history of the workplace and the labor movement. And I began to notice that just there's not a lot of trust. There has not been a lot of trust and specifically between Black and white women. And while shared sisterhood applies to people of any background, Mm -hmm. I'm a Black woman. And Beth is a white woman. And and so I wanted to study that. So I was working initially to develop the term, but I couldn't quite get traction. 
And then I started doing some consulting. I had a local neighborhood group where I did what I called a shared sisterhood digging bridge workshop. But those were just sort of higher level ideas. I really wanted to develop it. And then I realized, okay, if you're going to have to, if you want to develop this, you need to develop it with a white woman, probably. And Beth immediately came to mind because of the relationship that we developed over time, over 10, 15 years. And we had worked on other projects together. And I found her to be someone who I could really trust and who was brilliant and who had values of equity and justice and sisterhood. And so it felt good to ask Beth if she wanted to join in on the project. And I remember the day she emailed me about this and we had been working for a long time together and we're both in academia and we're both in the same area. We're management professors, which means our circles overlapped all the time, right? We had mutual friends. We went to the same conferences. You know, I had met Tina years ago at one of those same big conferences, the Academy of Management conference that she mentioned before. And I had seen her her talk and you know, we had started our relationship, which we can go all the way back to that at some point if you'd like to. Um, but in terms of when she reached out to me about shared sisterhood, that's what she said. She said, I've been toying around with this idea. I think there's something here. And do you want to talk about it? And I read her kind of initial white paper, this initial sort of essay that she had written to flesh out this idea. And there was so much history in it, so much history in it. And I was like, ah, oh, yes, this is it. We have to find this way to to bring together the humanities, history, right? Those sort of issues and the ways we tell stories about ourselves and social science, all of these ways in which people act and think and react. We have to bring those things together and we have to actually talk to people in ways that reflect the lives that they're living. And language is such an important part of that. And we have to give the people language to be able to explain this. And I, I feel like Tina and I, for so long, you know, you wait for other people to come up with things and you're like, let's study this thing that someone has been talking about. And we said, well, we can't wait for other people to come up with solutions about this. You will be waiting forever. And it was such a brilliant idea to center this, what particularly in the United States is such a quintessential relationship between women. It has so much history behind it between Black and white women in the United States. It just seemed like such a perfect place to start to deconstruct what's going on in American workplaces. I just want to add one thing. and This is sort of, it's not directly related to shared sisterhood, but it's related to the fact, as Beth mentioned, shared sisterhood combines all of these different domains. And I want to encourage people, because I actually received criticism in my academic career because I see connections between areas that other people might not see. But it comes across as I sound like a crazy scientist. <laughs> and so, so, but shared sisterhood is really the result of me saying, okay, how can we write about history and psychology and sociology and maybe some ethnography and the history of business, how can we bring all of those things together? So for people who see big picture, have a vision, it's important to write those things down, but then partner with somebody because Beth keeps me honest because I will quickly get big and she'll say, okay, let's bring it on in, Tina. I know you're focusing on, because I'm already thinking about the next book and the next book in 2025 <laughs> and how to be New York Times, but all this stuff. And Beth is like, let's just get the book in under deadline. <laughs> <laughs> Beth and Tina say they complement each other, but the rapport they have now wasn't built easily. 
So can you all take me back to like, when did you all first meet? Did you sit at the table to get like, what happened? Mm -hmm. Tina, (laughs) tell them how we first met. (laughs) Yeah, so I was at the Academy of Management and I had just done a paper presentation. And when you come off the stage and there was a queue of people wanting to talk about the research. And I jokingly say that Beth skipped up to me and she sort of got up in my, she got up in my personal space. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute, white lady. Who who are you? I don't know you. And, you know, I, we laugh, we crack up about that. Every time we tell that story, we laugh about it. But then what I had to do, I was in a very different emotional space because I didn't trust Beth. And the reason I didn't trust Beth as an individual is because for me, in my mind, as a Black woman academic, Beth was a proxy for white women as a collective. Mm. And in the academy, as well as in consulting and in banking, I've been betrayed by coworkers, and it's largely been at the hands of white women. And I did not trust Beth. And so when she approached me that way, I didn't know how to react. And so I sort of, I, I was friendly but I was not warm and embracing. And what I had to do was what later became known, we we call dig, which Mm -hmm. is ask myself, why are you reacting this way to Beth? Has Beth done anything that would make you say she's not trustworthy? And the answer was no. So then I had to check myself. I had to continue to dig. Well, why are you reacting this way? How can you change that? Then I found out that Beth and I both knew a Black woman academic in common. And I asked her about Beth and she vouched for Beth. And so that was a great signal. Okay, you can trust Beth. And then from there, we started, I mean, I would say there were tests along the way because you don't want to necessarily try to bridge or connect with someone whole hog, 100% from jump. You need to test and see, okay, what are the parameters of this relationship? Can I trust them? If When George Floyd is murdered, are they going to tell me that I'm overreacting? Because he? that's not, that's sort of blown out of proportion. And other women experience mm-hmm. that too. It's not about race. What are the boundaries and the parameters? How much does Beth value equity? All of those things were revealed over time. And then after that, it was clear that I wouldn't want to partner with anyone else to write Shared Sisterhood. I'll say there was probably literal skipping involved, if I have to say about that, right? Like, I was very young then. Um, But I think... You know, it was such a formative moment because Tina says, you know, that she had to dig, but I had to dig too, right? I came into approaching Tina with the assumption that I would be trusted right off the bat. Like, why wouldn't I be? Like, I have great intentions, of course. Like, this is, you know, that's what led me for that. But I say that I persisted, I often say I persisted in, you know, pursuing this relationship, this friendship, this bridge with Tina, because I knew that it would be worth it. I knew that she was a valuable person to know that I wanted to have that relationship with her. And once I realized that, then it didn't feel like I didn't feel resentful that she was, you know, it wasn't like she was putting me through hoops or anything to do. It was just, okay, well, let's see if we get on, Mm -hmm. right? Let's see if we share these values the way that I hope that we do. And it's like you wouldn't run out on that suspension bridge without putting your foot on it first and be like, well, can it really hold me? Can it really hold my weight? Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to test those things and you should. And and doing that is not an affront, but rather a demonstration that you really do want to get to the other side together and you're willing to go there. We just have to be patient for one another. And, you know, we we were both 
women in academia and, and Tina as a black woman in academia and me as a white woman in academia, there were some of these barriers that we shared and some that we did not share. And so we found the ways in which we could share those experiences and the ways in which we didn't. And we learned from each other, I think. And so, you know, we came into this from different places and with different backgrounds in terms of, you know, the power that's associated with our identities and, and the resources that we had access to. But because we shared that value of equity and because we dug into what was keeping us apart, we're really living this microcosm of the shared sisterhood process that we write about. And I think it can be easy to overlook what Beth did. Beth recognized that we were not starting at the same place when we were trying to connect, that we needed to do different things. And, and we talk about this in the book, but Beth was very empathetic with me because she could have easily gotten offended and said, Girl, later for you. If you don't trust me, forget it. I'll move on. But what she did was she empathized and said, you know what? I can understand why as a Black woman, she might not be that trusting of white women in the field, in the academy, because I know that things happen. I've heard about these things. So rather than becoming defensive or denying that I had a right to sort of protect myself, because after all, those protective mechanisms, they make sense if the harm is continuing. Racism is real. Anti-Blackness mm-hmm. is real. And so it makes sense to put on these protective mechanisms. But Beth took the time to empathize with me. And that helped me sort of then focus on myself and what I could do better. And I really think that's important. And, and we use the terms power dominant and historically marginalized. So as a white person, Beth is from a historically power-dominant group. Mm -hmm. As a Black person, I'm from a historically marginalized racial-ethnic group. And power, we're talking about power, which is access to and control over resources at the group level. And so Beth recognized that because those power dynamics affect how much we might trust each other, how empathetic we might be, how vulnerable, how much risk-taking we want to engage in. And Beth was really good at that And it's important for people to understand that. It's important for them to understand that you're starting at different places. I had to learn how to trust Beth, and Beth really had to learn. She had to start by empathizing with me. There's so much here that that I can unpack. As you said, Beth, your relationship, what you and Tina have, is a microcosm of shared sisterhood. Because you are actually taking us through the process of how we get to racial and gender equity and how we move into being Mm co-conspirators, how we stand for each other and not kind of just observe or think that we know. Why shared sisterhood now? When we think about the events of, let me take us back to 2020, Mm. which it's like a blink of an eye that, that this happened. I mean, we were just... We're still in the moment, but we were at the height of everything. Mm -hmm. So we're in a global pandemic. And the killing of Black people at the hands of uh, the police or murders at the hands of the police, we're seeing it escalate right before our eyes. And then there's George Floyd. And we see his murder. And we see it. We are in a moment where the world has paused because we are trying to manage a global pandemic, trying to figure out what's going on. So coming off the heels of that and continuing to find our footing 
to make the commitments that corporations, individuals have said we're going to do better. We've signed pledges. We've marched in the street. We've said that Black lives matter. But how do we look at this from a shared sisterhood perspective? And why do you think this book can help move us from a moment to a movement? I think, you know, Tina and I experienced that moment largely in in many ways, both together and separate, right? We came together and talked about these moments, but we're also experiencing these moments, you know, with our own histories and our own lenses and our own relationships to these things, you know, with our own children and our families and the way we're thinking about how this impacts our life. But we both experience those moments, I think, with the same shared goal, which is how do we come together to make this not happen again? How do we help organizations who are reaching out to Tina at that point? Like, how? what do we say? What do we do? Like, how do we, you know, and you for I think there was a moment where you saw sometimes for the first time organizations saying maybe we could say the word racism in the boardroom. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can say that instead of just, you know, kind of skirting around that issue. And so once there's kind of that door that creaks open a little bit, you put your whole foot in and you say, okay, here's an opportunity to shift this conversation and to shift the way in which people are encouraged, not just allowed, but encouraged to bring their whole selves to work. And that includes the trauma, the community level trauma that has been experienced. I think at that moment, Tina and I said, we have to talk to people and organizations. We have to give them the tools to create change in their own communities, to do something, to be optimistic that change can happen. Because I think, Tina, you can speak for yourself on this, but I think both of us are the types of people like we need something to do. Yeah, I mean, I would say the short answer for me to your question, Cindy, is I want everyone to be liberated. Hmm. Liberated from the racism that they may be experiencing, as well as liberating people who are racist. It is a burden. You're in a cage. You may think that you're free, but if you have racist or sexist or homophobic ideology, you are not as free as you think you are. And all of those things are connected in that we are, as a society, valuing people based on how they identify or who they are. And that is not okay. And I'm a talker, as you know, but there are moments in my life where I've gotten really quiet and I'll tell Beth something is percolating, something is happening. There's, I can feel that there is something. I'm, and I'm a Christian woman. And so I'm like, I always say, that's the Holy Spirit. I feel like he is shaking some stuff loose and I need to write some things down. And that happens at specific punctuated moments. And one of them, I mean, during the George Floyd when George, I've never watched the full video because I, I do think I was so traumatized. I could not write. Beth probably remembers, and I and I had I could not write because I was so angry with white people as a collective. I was so angry with the system because I remember I'm st- I'm married to a history professor, so I'm remembering. Okay, during the Civil War, this kind of murder and this trauma. I'm remembering the period of Reconstruction, the period of Jim Crow period of the civil rights. So I'm thinking about this through history and recognize what in the world, when are we going to actually change? While Beth was quietly working through her anger and trauma, she realized that people don't need another academic work to help them be anti-racist. Instead, they need a guidebook 
on how to take collective action. And that's what shared sisterhood is. It is intentionally designed in a way that it is accessible, hopefully to everyone, because I want us all to be free. Liberation for me is at the root of all of this. Here is a toolkit. If you really mean what you say, if you didn't just go out and buy all these other books and mark up the margins, but not do anything different at work, Mm -hmm. then you need to figure out how to take that information and apply it so that maybe our children, shoot, maybe in 10 years, maybe our children, whoever, will not have to experience the things that we experience in the workplace. You know, I think back to... 2020 and moving into 2021, and I don't know if it got as much coverage, but one of the things that made me very interested in shared sisterhood, and as you, you've you talked about, Beth, the lens that you saw and, and Tina dealing with this in, in different ways, there was a call to action happening between Black and white women. Mm-hmm. I remember watching on the news women who were inviting each other into their homes to have a conversation that they've never had before. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking to myself, if they had had shared sisterhood then, what would the conversation have looked like to really say, we need to break the binds. We need to break through the historical things that Mm -hmm. are holding us back and the beliefs maybe that we might have for each other. And there were some women that were doing that. They were willing to say, I want to talk about race. I want to talk about ethnicity and gender. And I think it gives a different perspective on the moment because we are talking about a Black male being killed, Mm -hmm. but we also had Breonna Taylor. Mm -hmm. And when you think about conversation and approaching How do you dig? How do we really get to the heart of the matter and get past what I call the superficial hellos in the office and the superficial how are you doing to how are you? Hmm. How do I move from ally or advocate? How do we move from that to co-conspirators where we're really standing for each other? Because I think that's at the heart of shared sisterhood. So if you could talk to us a little bit about how do we dig and how do we make more meaningful relationships with each other coming from these very different experiences. So when we talk about dig, one of the things that we tried to do with Shared Sisterhood was say, you know, you have a lot of people talking about these individual things you can do, the books that you read, the way you think about unconscious bias or prejudice or or those sort of things. And then you have people talking about systemic issues, systemic racism, systemic bias. There has to be some way to bridge between these things. There has to be some way to get from what individual people are thinking and feeling and doing to us all working together in the systems we build. And DIG is the first part of this process of trying to dismantle these systemic issues that we see in our workplaces. And it requires us to get really honest with ourselves and dig into our own preconceptions about race, about gender, about power, and recognize those particular biases and worldviews that we have and challenge them. We say in the book, we interrogate yourself. 
right? Ask yourself really hard questions. Ask yourself when you have a belief come up, what if I'm wrong about that, right? And, you know, to try to go into that with the idea that if you have this goal of equity, if that's your value, if you really believe in it, then you should want to dismantle those parts of you, to Tina's point, that make you less free, Mm. that keep you from being able to understand yourself better and understand when you're not doing that. When you are setting roadblocks to yourself to protect yourself, to keep yourself from feeling uncomfortable and dig is that individual stuff. Some of it's going to have to happen on your own. Some of it has to happen with the help of people who understand your journey and can do that. Um, But it's this first step that we think is necessary, but not sufficient, perhaps to building these sort of sisterhood relationships. But I think it's a really critical part of moving from the sort of, I really care about not being prejudiced or being anti-racist. Okay, now what? Which I think, you know, Tina was talking Mm -hmm. about with this moving to co-conspirator stage, right? Yeah, I mean, so Dr. Tiffany Jana, Dr. Ella Bell, and Dr. Stella Nkomo, the three of them who Beth and I really give a nod to in the book in terms of helping us better understand the distinction between an ally and accomplice and a co-conspirator. According to Beth and Tina, as well as the DEI experts that they cite in their book, an ally, an accomplice, and a co-conspirator engage in equity work on different levels. An ally is someone who educates themselves about individual and systemic issues, but doesn't take the work much further. An accomplice is someone who is willing to advocate for a marginalized group, but doesn't edit their actions based on advice from that group. The gold standard is the co-conspirator, and that is someone who believes in equity and who acts, but their actions are informed by the voices of people who are in the historically marginalized group that they are striving to help. And this does not mean that they expect the historically marginalized people to educate them. What it means is that they are listening. So if they attend a meeting, an affinity group meeting, or if they're doing that reading, they may be trying to develop authentic connections with people from those groups. And then they can say, you know what? What I have seen as a common theme in these meetings is that an equity audit of salaries would be something that would be really beneficial. Is that true? And they say yes. So then the co-conspirator takes that information. And when he is in spaces or places where the historically marginalized people are not, he speaks up on their behalf. He uses his social capital, his political capital to advance the agenda set by members of the historically marginalized group. And if we can move people from ally to accomplice to co-conspirator, co-conspirators are enacting shared sisterhood. They're doing the work Mm -hmm. of actually dismantling systemic inequity. I love that. Doing the work of dismantling, really being in it. Co-conspirators, to me, are the people like they're in there with you. They're not on the sidelines critiquing, (laughs) but really at the table with you moving things forward. I'm interested in knowing before we go further, the word sisterhood. Mm -hmm. What did people say when you proposed shared, I get it, or collective... But sisterhood has its own history and it's not, you know, I use that term from a sorority perspective. So when you chose that, because we know language matters, language is powerful. Tell me about that being intent. That's what I thought. I said, this is intentional. What's the why behind and 
the thinking behind using sisterhood? So shared sisterhood, I'm doing consulting, I'm talking to organizations, and this question comes up. And consistently what I'm telling people is the fact that we are having this conversation and you think it's problematic that you're using the term sisterhood, shared sisterhood, to refer to everyone. And I said, well, do you have the same reaction when we talk about business fraternities at colleges or universities, and that is supposed to be for everyone? So I wanted to flip the idea Mm. of community on its head. Sisterhood is a, a traditionally feminine notion, okay? And there are It's indirect. I mean, Beth, I loved when she came up with this sort of encapsulation. It's a direct response or retort to the old boys network. Old boy sounds insular. Mm. It's masculinized. You think of competition. You think of aggressiveness. Sisterhood is about... Inclusionary. Bring people in. Yeah, it's inclusionary. Mm -hmm. It is... It is you know, things that we might consider more stereotypically feminine, but those are the things that many organizations are lacking. Employees Mm -hmm. don't feel cared for. They don't Mm -hmm. feel as though you even notice if they're absent. They don't feel like their voices are heard. So shared sisterhood was intentionally designed. And I remember when I I asked my son about it, he's like, I I wouldn't want somebody calling me a sister. And I said, well, why? If you demonstrate empathy, risk-taking, trust, and vulnerability, then you're... you're dem- He's like, I, I guess that's true. It forces people to stop. To stop and think. It, it, to stop and think and to challenge their notions of what is necessary to be a successful human being, but specifically to be a successful leader or employee in an organization. What would it look like if instead of racing to get your opinion heard or to get the bonus, people started linking arms and thinking about how can we help each other as a community? So how can a, we all get ahead? Yeah. yeah, it's a very different notion of management and leadership and, and working mm-hmm. that we wanted to intentionally retort and create. It's bringing a, a positive yeah. psychology yes. approach. Organizational scholarship, um, yep. To this empowering, knowing the value of meaningful connections in the workplace and what that drives to your point, you know, feeling a part of something, feeling cared for, feeling valued Mm -hmm. for what you bring, not as a commodity, not as a, just a skill, but to your point that does turn things a little bit. So you are tapping into something that I think is purposeful and empowering. And when I think about that, It's an opportunity for us to infuse this type of uh, not just energy, but this this information, these tools to women's networks. So when I think about the workplace, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Some people call them affinity groups. Some people call them employee resource groups. Some people call them inclusion networks. We have a lot of names. The women's networks and the black network have the most tenure in usually in organizations, organizations that have been around a long time. But what you find is the agenda for the women's initiative led by the women's networks don't tend to have a lens on race, ethnicity, equity, nor justice. And so, Beth and Tina, what would you say we can do? Because these are intact groups right now that 
we can start anew, we can do things together. What is something that we can do to move from where we currently are to more of a shared sisterhood? First, I do want to acknowledge that the bifurcation, the women's group and the Black affinity group are often, they have different agendas. Mm. And I have found that in almost every organization that I've worked with. And I personally experienced it as an MBA student and as a banker, as a consultant, you know, when I was working. And what was interesting is white women tended to go to the women's group. Black women went to the Black group. Latina women went to the Latina group. Asian women went to the Asian group. So what you saw, it's reflected in the opening quote by Kim McLaren, is it's, you know, it's Black and white women. White women choose race, Mm. right? They're choosing race by having a white women's network that only prioritizes white issues. You are choosing race over gender. And what ends up happening is the other women sort of go into and do the same thing. But what does that mean? That means that we are not having spaces where we're coming together and saying, okay, we may all identify as women, but we have different experiences. The opening line of the book is the question, can Black women and white women be friends? Posed by the author Kim McLaurin in The Washington Post. This is going to sound potentially controversial, but I think organizations need to reconstitute these ERGs and they need to become working groups, dig groups, bridge groups, where you are trying to understand what is happening, particularly with women, with Black women, with white women, and how can we have those different constituencies help each other understand that Mm -hmm. within, so you might have Black women who are talking, white women who are talking, Mm -hmm. and then... We have to acknowledge power. So how can the historically power-dominant group members, how can they become co-conspirators for members of historically marginalized groups? So being very clear, we're going to have this conversation because the issues confronting Black women may be different than the issues confronting white women or Latina women or Asian women. And we are going to prioritize the voices of people who've been historically marginalized. And then we're going to work together, arm in arm, to figure out how we can change issues of gender writ large throughout the organization. But we must get the input of those voices that have been typically ignored. Mm -hmm. And what this does is it deconstructs the notion of white womanhood as the default, Mm. right? As there being a, a definition of a woman's resource group like how can it be a woman's resource group if it's only about the experiences of one type of woman and so i think deconstructing that is really important and i think you know the same thing if you have a black employee resource group that is focused on black men in particular then you're going to have those same sort of conversations i think but all of those things require dig they require you to get really honest with yourself about the things you prioritize the way you see the world why that's the way you see the world and how you can learn more about yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about learning about other people like you are, you know, observing people that you don't understand. It's about learning about yourself. Mm-hmm. Can you all say more about the bridging piece? Because I, I, I love how we talked about and you put it in steps. We would start with dig and then we would move to bridge, which is a power tool to me. Mm-hmm. But what does that look like, Tina, if you could take us into bridge? That would be great. 
Yeah, so Bridge, which is about creating authentic connections with people based on risk-taking, trust, vulnerability, and empathy, is critical. And it has to happen in a way where you don't perceive this as a zero-sum game. Mm. Because the whole reason why so many people are so resistant to talking about power is because they think you're going to say, I want you to give some up. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to say is when you bridge with somebody, you are enriched. You benefit. If you don't have a relationship with Black women, you, I can for sure tell you, you are missing out. If you don't have a relationship with Asian people, you are missing out. The yeah. way that our society has unfortunately segregated us, racio-ethnically, especially in our where we live, if you look at our neighborhoods, where we go to school, where we socialize, it is so segregated. Bridging starts with being vulnerable and demonstrating that another person can trust you. You have to educate yourself, show that you're willing to take risks on that person's behalf, and be willing to listen. So I'm a Black Christian woman. Christian is a historically power-dominant religion in the United States. And so if I'm attempting to bridge with someone who is Hindu or atheist or agnostic or Jewish, somebody who is from a different faith background, I'm going to listen much more than I talk hmm. because I don't understand the norms. When you are the power dominant group, the norms associated with your group, that's what everyone else has to learn. But you don't have to learn because you are the group. Mm-hmm. So, so that means I never even noticed that until I was older, I'm embarrassed to say, wait a minute, Diwali is not a holiday that's off. Huh. We don't even get off Rosh Hashanah. This was back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. So, but we get off Christmas. That so the calendar, the academic calendar, is constructed on a particular, you know, Western notion of Christianity. That is really important to acknowledge. So when I then attempt to bridge with someone, I can learn much more from them. I also do independent research because I'm not looking for that person. When you're bridging, do not place a burden on the other person. Work to educate yourself. And then sometimes I may be working to connect with someone who's an atheist. I mean, Beth has told me I have her. Beth is an atheist. But we're not going to always talk about atheism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes we talk about being mothers. We, we, we talk about our shared identities. We're both mothers. We're both academics. We both like to dance. We both like old school hip hop. We both enjoy certain shows. So... We can develop connections around identities outside of the one that is the main power differentiator that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But then when those issues come up that we need to explore, because there might be some times, and I'm like, Beth, I need to ask you about this belief system that I may have related to this particular issue. What are your thoughts on that? Because we've established a trusting and strong bridge so over time, when it comes to conflict or perhaps different perspectives on religion, it doesn't crack the bridge. Right. Because mm. we know we share the value of equity. Yeah. Because I know her intentions, even people like to talk about their intentions all the time. I brought that up before, but I know what her intentions are because we've mm. built that bridge and it becomes this cycle back and forth where I'm going to, we're going to test this bridge together. We're going to build trust and then we're going to see if it holds up and then we're going to build some more trust and we're going to see if it holds up until that bridge becomes the sturdiest bridge that you could throw stuff at. And what I think is important is, you know, if Tina and I build a bridge, meaning we are interacting all the time 
building trust, vulnerability, empathy, taking risks to show those things. If we're building that bridge and then Tina has a bridge with somebody else that maybe I don't know very well or maybe doesn't trust me for whatever reason it is before, then she can become a conduit for me to build a bridge with that person. Or we can build as a collective, we at least know she can say, well, I don't know how much I trust Beth in particular, but I know she shares Mm -hmm. the value and I know I trust Tina who trusts Beth. And that means we can work together towards these things that we need to do to get equity and becomes the mechanism towards coalition building, towards generating power and creating equity at work. And that's a a lot of coalition building in the workplace is so transactional. It's so, okay, I don't like you. (laughs) I don't trust you, but we both want this thing. So I fine, I'll hold my nose and we'll work together. But that means it's really easy to divide and conquer. It's really Mm -hmm. easy for those kind of coalitions to blow up in everyone's faces. That's not, that's not, the case if these are real bridges, right? Mm-hmm. I see this as very powerful, but if we don't get this together and understand what shared sisterhood looks like across, as you said, Tina, race and ethnicity, I think we're in trouble. So what's a call to action that you can specifically speak to for women of color who are hearing this, who are in the workplace? What can we be doing now to work together. You're, so I will answer since I'm, I'm a black woman, but okay. <laughs> well, so no, I do think for me, I think we have to dig. So a, a lot of times when we think about shared sisterhood, many people put the onus on people from historically dominant groups. You all need to dig and educate yourselves because you have the power and you're the ones who are the least educated. There, there are a lot of people who have those kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've experienced is that as women of color, we don't know each other. So if even within Black women, mm-hmm. let's not talk about class divides or colorism or educational divides. There is so much that we need to do intra-race within mm-hmm. Black women. I think we need, to, I would love to have shared sisterhood, dig conversations and bridge conversations within Black women because we're not a monolith. I usually end doing a call to action and asking the Arthurs to say this, but I'm going to do something different and say, I want anyone listening in on our podcast to get this book. And then I want you to work with Dr. Tina Opie and Dr. Beth Livingston on creating a shared sisterhood conversations where we are bridging and we are digging And we want to know how you're doing it. So we're going to have all the information on how you can reach out to Dr. Beth Livingston and Dr. Tina Opie in our show notes. And this has been wonderful. We might have to do a part two because I'm like, I have like 50,000 more questions, but I feel like this is not it. So I look forward to having you back. Dr. Beth Livingston, Dr. Tina Opie, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you all for joining me on this episode of Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter. Beth and Tina's book comes out December 2022. You can learn more about it at drtinaopi.com slash shared sisterhood book. At MetLife, We believe making a difference in the lives of our customers, community, and the world around us is altogether possible. Learn more and join us 
at jobs.metlife.com. Links are in our show notes. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you also take the time to rate and leave our show a review. Before we go, we'd like to thank our podcast partner, Human Group Media, who helped us produce this show. That's it for today. I hope you join me next month for a brand new episode.